Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Professor Robert Thomas and Christina Kiss. Rob is a professor of sports and biological science and consultant oncologist, and Christina is an experienced Pilates instructor. And today, we're diving into both the science and practical elements of exercise and cancer. So, without further ado, Rob, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. Nice to be back. And thanks for having me, Ben. Good to be on on the podcast today. Um, So today, obviously talking about exercise and cancer. Now, when people think about exercise, well, certainly when I think about exercise, I'm not doing it in a sense of thinking this is going to reduce my risk of cancer. People know it's good for them, know it hopefully helps to promote health. But what is the relationship between exercise and cancer? Uh, Well, Of all the lifestyle measures you can do to prevent and improve your outcomes after cancer, probably exercise is by far the most important. Um, Obviously, you you never look at lifestyle measures in isolation. Of course, you know, good diet, having plenty of vitamin D in the winter, etc. are important. But if someone was to say to me, which is the most important, I would say exercise. That's kind of astonishing to me because I think people look at diet and think that's probably one of the major risk factors or maybe for example the things which everyone knows which is going to increase their risk like smoking and um, but exercise that that's quite astonishing to me is there any particular type of exercise for example high intensity in- interval training is something which is very popular right now good question the people tend to say you know the word diet or exercise as one entity Exercise is, you know, there are PhDs of, <laughs> of exercise science. So if you, you know, belittle what they do as one single item, exercise, it's, uh, you know, it's much more complicated than that. You know, ex- exercise is an individual thing. Um, you know, for some people, if they're perhaps overweight, more cardiovascular or um, weight-reducing type exercise programs would work. Some other people might have, say, osteoporosis, mm-hmm. or weight-bearing exercise. If you're a sportsman, of course, you exercise to improve the performance for that specific sport. You wouldn't say to, you know, Bradley Wiggins, you need to go for a run. I mean, he needs to exercise <laughs> on his bike, doesn't he? So the same with cancer. You have to look at every individual. We're going to hear later about the benefits of, of Pilates, which I'm a massive fan of. And that has particular benefits in patients who've recovered from cancer treatment. So, so yeah, I mean, we, uh, during the podcast, hopefully we can explore those in more detail. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it, you look at the individual and you make a program. And that's why it's not a case for me to say to a patient, you need to exercise more. It's, it's, they need to be assessed, preferably with a sports scientist, referred to an exercise program and a, a specific regime plan for that patient mm-hmm. and and supervised and encouraged all the way through. In terms of people sitting at home right now and maybe they have a sedentary job, I'm sitting down most of the time at work and right now we're both sitting down. Mm. So in terms of people thinking I need to exercise on a daily basis, many people will go to the gym. Is that kind of intermittent bout of exercise coupled with a large amount of sedentary behavior 
worse than something like moving or having a job where you move all the time. A tour guide, for example. Mm. I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here. Mm. In um, relation to exercise and cancer, that is. That, that's a very good point because uh, imagine an office worker, they get up, they walk um, to the tube, they sit on the tube for half an hour, they sit in the desk job, and they think, what I'm going to do is, is go to the gym, say, twice or even three times a week. There was a, actually a paper looking at this, and unfortunately, if you have a, a sedentary job, your risk is still higher, even though you go to the gym a couple of times a week, than mm-hmm. someone who has a job who is walking around. So, mm-hmm. um, as you say, a tour guide or a, a, um, construction, or a, a worker. construction worker, yeah. etc. Well, there's another point about construction workers, actually, because they have lots of other negative lifestyle factors. <laughs> but um, So, uh, I gave a talk, actually, in, in Canary Wharf when it was open before COVID, and um, I, I did stress the data that, you know, office workers do really need to be standing more. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the length of time sitting is, is a risk factor. Um, so standing desks are important. Also, um, you know, try to walk to the tube or, or get off the bus one stop earlier. So you have a five-minute walk in the morning. Try to do something uh, physical in your lunch break. Uh, so every day you need to improve physical activity levels um, and avoid long periods of sed- sedentary behaviour. Right. So would you recommend that every single office should have a standing desk, for example? If if you have yeah if you've got, if you've got a job which requires you to sit for a long period of time like mm-hmm. a call center or or so forth yes they should have standing desks there was a PhD student in Bedfordshire University where I'm where I'm attached who did a great bit of work looking at the time sitting as an independent risk factor to uh, chronic uh, degenerative conditions including cancer so yeah the answer if you can afford it, uh, yes. would would be yes. Or alternatively, you know, it, it doesn't. It's not. Uh, doesn't take uh, the brain of Britain to work out that maybe every twenty minutes you stand up, sit down, maybe walk up and down the stairs and get back to your desk. Yeah, I mean, I I know this is a fact. Like we we, we said this last time. Like sitting is the new smoking. Um, and I, I implemented habits, so every half an hour or an hour, my phone would go off, do a little buzz, and I'd get up and walk around and do 20 jumping jacks, 20 squats, something yeah. like that. And during lockdown, I was doing 100 press-ups a day, 100 squats, intermittent bounce of them, right, just to every single day, just to get there, just to ensure I was moving. Mm. But something, and that just falls off after a while if you're doing a bit a huge amount of stress or a bit of work and i think from what you said like a standing desk is an easy thing mm. to kind of implement and it's right by your desk so you, you won't forget and um, i think i'm gonna have to do that in my home office now <laughs> which my girlfriend's gonna hate me because i've got so many gadgets in that office <laughs> um yeah it was quite funny i went to a meeting in the Institute of Sports Medicine on Tottenham Court Road and uh, as the meeting started I sat down and I turned around and I was the only one sitting so everyone else <laughs> stood through me so yeah, maybe the culture of standing in meetings need to be brought into the office as well and I do this in the hospital sometimes and they all turn around and look at me as if say what, what am I doing standing and that culture needs to change yes and the other thing which is um rather uh, negative is a couple of times a week I try to go for um uh, just a, a small jog, um, just 10, 15 minutes in my lunch break. Especially now with telephone consultations during COVID, I find yeah. I am sitting more at my desk. So it's really important to do that. 
Now, people look at you and say, oh, you've got time to go for a jog. You know, you've got all the time in the world. And he said, no, I've made that time, uh, you know, instead of going to sit in the canteen. But the culture is, if you see someone going for a run, they think they've, they're not working hard enough. And yeah. that needs to be instilled in employees, not that they should be encouraged to do that, not criticised that they're looking like they're having a good time. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, things like implementing exercise strategies will promote health in general, surely. I, I mean, I don't know any data on this, but I imagine it reduces the amount of sick days you have, for example, if you remain healthy. Um, I will have to link to some data, having said that, if, if there is any. Um, but I imagine that would be the case. Um, well, um, in the NHS, where I work, um, I have lots of lovely colleagues. I have to preface that. But <laughs> obesity is a big problem in the NHS. Yes. Um, it's, it's nearly 50% of uh, workers are overweight. Mm -hmm. And that is linked to um, you know, joint-related problems and time off work. So absenteeism in the NHS is also very high. Um, and there, there is an NHS initiative to try and reduce obesity rates in the NHS. So if you, this would be supported um, nationally. So, yeah, I would totally agree. Any, any activity, reducing sugar, uh, increasing exercise levels would be welcome. One thing I wanted to ask you, and this might be something which not many people think about, is when, when we're talking about cancer um, risk, but also recovery, so recovery from cancer, um, I read a paper recently, and for the life of me, I can't remember the reference, but it was talking about cancer cachexia and the amount of lean mass you have at the start of that. And the lean mass is a predictor to outcomes. Would this be correct, or have I completely... Uh, yes, I mean, cachexia is a, um, is a pretty poor prognostic feature if you have cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so um, at any stage, actually, most of the time it's with, with people who've got terminal sort of end-stage disease. But with uh, fatty diets and things, you get people, you know, over-fasting and things. Yes. And uh, they, can, they can have an early cachexia for... for you know, not related to the cancer, and it actually would decrease their outcomes. We know, for example, that men with prostate cancer who go on to drugs like abiraterone, which is a very good new drug, mm -hmm. um, that if you have um, cachexia or low protein mass, you are less likely to respond by orders of up to 30%. Wow. Um, so, um, you know, the, the list goes on and on. If you start hormone therapies to men, uh, with prostate cancer, which is a common treatment, they mm -hmm. get more fat and less muscle. Um, and that increases the risk of lots of things, diabetes, heart disease, mood changes. Mm -hmm. And now we know outcomes. Um, but how many centres in the UK would put a man into an exercise programme when they start these hormones? Probably one or two. Even though it's a nice recommendation, it's not placed very well. And my view is that if you start a, a treatment which is going to reduce muscle mass and increase fat, mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to protect that patient. Yeah, so, offset the side yeah. effects. Yeah. So there should be two prescriptions, one for the hormones, two for the uh, exercise referral program. Mm -hmm. And in Bedfordshire, we do it. With, uh, Bedfordshire University run our exercise program for us, and they were able to do research in those patients as well. Um, and the uptake is getting better through constant reinforcements of the message. But I'm afraid around the country, um, it's not universally done, which is a shame. That is a shame. So in terms of like 
the best type of exercise to mitigate these side effects like you said reduction in muscle mass but also increased in fat mass and i'm thinking for people as a preventative measure as well would resistance training or weight bearing exercises um maybe be more beneficial than than aerobic exercise for example um well it depends what uh, part of the cancer pathway you look at so yes. I, I like to split it up to you know uh, if you haven't got cancer will exercise reduce your risk of getting it well the answer is clearly yes there's, there's numerous papers showing that when you have ex- when you have cancer uh, what sort of exercises will reduce the risk of getting uh, complications of treatment such as mm-hmm. blood clots weight gain cardiac problems and when you've gone through your cancer treatment which exercise prevent uh, or help prevent it coming back in the future and you know there's different types of exercise for for all those but generally speaking the data suggests for example in terms of cancer prevention that if you do around three to four hours of um, mixed um, resistance and anaerobic regimes particularly exercise which gets you a little bit hot and sweaty I mean the intensity question I mean I've been sitting on the Macmillan exercise committee for several years and we have lots and lots of discussions about how much exercise is good there there doesn't seem to be a upper limit unless you're sort of an extreme athlete right Um, for example there was a paper looking between three hours a week and five hours a week and five hours marginally better than three hours okay but your best benefit was up to three hours and um so like the minimum effective dose kind of thing three hours well, any exercise is beneficial. So getting off the sofa, you know, there's yeah. a, an organization called uh, Sofa to 1K, which is great because that reduces your risk of blood clots and things. But if you really want to get the biochemical changes kicking in, you have to sort of push yourself a little bit. Right. So ambling around the park, looking at the petunias is very good. <laughs> but if you want to go to the park, I encourage people to do some Nordic walking or actually pushing yourself. So you come back feeling a bit hot and out of breath. Uh, and you know being out of breath improves lung capacity so it improves the health of your lung also very important in this day and age with covid etc mm-hmm. and also gets your heart to beat a bit faster using up some of the excess calories reducing sort of clots in your in your coronary vessels and reducing the risk of heart attacks etc so yeah you have to push yourself a bit to get the full benefit okay right because well, when you were saying the because I always think of exercise, it has a hormetic response in the body, meaning like a little bit. It's actually quite damaging in certain instances, but the body rebuilds itself better. So the overall net effect is positive. Mm. But I'm interested to see, and I, do, I don't know whether this is widespread or not, that long distance athletes, for example, marathon runners, they have a, a greater, well, there's associated risk between increases instances of cardiovascular disease. And I was wondering whether that increased their risk of things like cancer. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, when you uh, advise any uh, lifestyle habit, you have to look at the risks and benefits. Yes. Um, a colleague of mine, a consultant oncologist who wasn't used to running, just recently fell over onto the gravel and broke her arm and had cuts all over her face. So she's not particularly a fan. So, of course, you know, you need to prepare um well you know get good uh, shoes you know if you're not used to exercise um you know go to a pilates instructor go to a, a, an exercise professional it's probably money well spent at the beginning and then you can take over and do it yourself mm-hmm. 
Um, but in terms of biochemistry, there's certain factors which are probably urban myths. One is um, that weight-bearing exercise weights increase your testosterone levels, which scares some men with um, prostate cancer. And in fact, I was asked to review a study recently, and they, they, they were saying, oh, well, we won't tell men to do resistance training, which is, of course, completely wrong. It's exactly what you need to be telling them to maintain muscle bulk. And actually, yes, if you do exercise, your testosterone level does go up for about 20 minutes, half an hour. And then through negative feedback in your body, the testosterone levels drop. So actually, long distance runners, cyclists have lower levels of testosterone in the long term, which can be a problem, actually. That's why cyclists often get osteoporosis mm -hmm. and fatigue. So that's an urban myth. The other one is a thing called heat shock proteins yes. which go up when you when you exercise to protect your heart and other organs and there was, someone did an experiment on you know cell lines where they dropped heat shock, shock proteins into a cell line gave them chemotherapy and said oh look it's protecting you from um, chemotherapy so and it was all sorts of people then extrapolating that data saying you shouldn't exercise during chemo which is completely wrong because all the other data shows it enhances chemo and protects normal tissues and all what actually happens is that cancer cells produce their own heat shock proteins anyway, vastly superior to the ones your body produces. Uh, and in fact, one of the targeted treatments for anti-cancer is an anti-heat shock protein element. But anyway, that's a different, right. I'm going off on a tangent here. <laughs> but the bottom line is you, um, you, you will protect the normal cells with heat shock proteins, not cancer cells. So that's another urban myth. Um, and... I was trying to think of the others, which, uh, um, yeah, that's, I mean, those are the ones which are trauma, heat shock proteins, VIP. and testosterone. The VIP? Um, yeah, well, if you want to talk about the biochemical changes, when yeah. you, when you can, but, we can go on to that. Let's yeah. jump on that in a second. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Both your books, How to Live Well, which is your new book, which will be out, I think, when this podcast is published. Uh, yes, thank you for plugging my book. It's, yeah. I'm very proud of that. It took three years to write. It's called How to Live. Yeah, How to Live. And it's addressing the... Uh, it's a bit of a play on words. There's a previous book called How Not to Die, and we felt, well, it's actually more relevant to be how to live. And how to live and enjoy life, and how to live without the risk of premature chronic diseases, uh, which are actually the biggest cause of death now. You know, 80% of deaths are conditions related to high blood pressure, high cholesterol, uh, dementia... Um, diabetes, all of which have a very strong lifestyle element. Mm -hmm. I don't want to blame people for having these conditions because it can happen anyway, but you know, you can reduce your risk of those. And what the book is trying to show is what is the evidence that you can do on a daily basis to reduce the risk of having these horrible diseases which affect your quality of life and you know, mean you're in and out of doctors' waiting rooms and having chemotherapy and things later on. So in your new book, How to Live, and also your previous book, Keep Healthy After Cancer, you mentioned how exercise can influence different um, biological pathways, but including inflammatory biomarkers as well. And this was really interesting to me because in, um, when you exercise, you actually have an acute inflammatory effect, and this is, this is important for a number of different reasons, but there's a net positive benefit of exercise and actually reduces inflammation. Is there a point where you, for example, when I think of a cancer patient, I'm thinking they're already inflamed. So are they more prone to overdoing the exercise where it becomes negative? 
Um, well, you're right to point out about inflammation. There was actually a study which looked at rectal biopsies after inflammation, and, and it did show that prostaglandin levels and, and markers of excess inflammation reduced with exercise. So that's the good thing. Yeah, initially it would go up, especially if you do contact sports or you sprain your ankle or, you know, you over-exercise. And um, the, the, when, you, when you exercise, you increase the energy requirement, and a side product of energy production is the produce, production of free radicals, which mm-hmm. can damage your DNA and damage your tissue. However, the body reacts to that by sensing this increased oxidative stress and improving um, the levels of antioxidant enzymes. However, these uh, so there is a sort of lag, and that's why it's important to a graduated exercise regime to build up your fitness. And if you're not used to exercise, and if you've gone through cancer treatment, it wouldn't be a good idea to suddenly just start exercising without thinking about it. And the same with you know training for marathons, etc. The problem is when you get to the super athletes, you know they it doesn't matter how much training they're doing, they're using so much energy that they are triggering a lot of free radicals. And yeah, there is um, some evidence which you just pointed out. Uh, you know, the the health benefits of being a super extreme um, cyclist or marathon runner, they, they've gone off the curve. You know, it, it starts getting unhealthy at that point. But there's other ways you can mitigate and improve the natural adaption of antioxidant enzymes, and that's through diet. That's why it's very important that when you start exercise, you need to start eating lots of polyphenol-rich foods, Mm -hmm. making sure your minerals and vitamins are uh, to an adequate level um, because antioxidant enzymes, for example, need uh, zinc, they need selenium to to form, and they're regulated by polyphenols, which are the things in the diet which give it its colour, its taste, and its smell. And that's why, you know, you you hear of these, you know, blackberry... um, shoots uh shots um and and you know i totally uh, abide by that you really need to increase the level of those healthy polyphenols through um through diet preferably and mm-hmm. and in some cases through supplementation okay brilliant now, what something which i just thought of now is that we actually covered this in our in our previous podcast mm-hmm. about polyphenol which foods and how it's so beneficial with exercise, you increase reactive oxygen species acutely, and this mm. leads to mitochondrial changes and mitochondrial adaptation, mitochondrial biogenesis, which is extremely beneficial. It's one of the reasons why we do exercise, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I know of a study, and I'll link to it in the show notes, where they actually um, supplemented vitamin C and vitamin E, and it reduced this yeah. after exercise. Um, and I think the supplementation was pre, and some of it was post in two different groups. Um, but I'll link to the study in the show notes for listeners. I was interested to see if you think foods high in polyphenols would have the same effect, so might mitigate some of the beneficial effects of exercise. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because there are people around the world who don't know the difference between direct antioxidants, which is your vitamin A and V, uh, E, um, and polyphenol-rich foods. And yeah. in fact, I see headlines all over the world you know, of, of, a, of someone next to a bowl of fruit going, uh, you know, these can reduce your, increase your risk of cancer and reduce exercise performance. 
The data you're referring to are on direct antioxidants, vitamin A and vitamin E mainly. Right. Vitamin C actually isn't a direct antioxidant. It's actually it's always called that, but it actually works by improving DNA repair. So that's why okay. studies which show high dose of vitamin C aren't usually that bad. But definitely, if you have adequate levels of A and E, what it does is because the body senses they're in the cell, they then don't adapt with the antioxidant enzymes because they've allowed them to, to, to take care of the process. Um, so you don't get this natural adaption. And of course, as soon as the A and E go out of your bloodstream, you are not protected. So you increase oxidative stress. What polyphenols do is encourage the formation of antioxidant enzymes when they're needed. Mm -hmm. What they also do, there's um, uh, an enzyme called CAP1, is they switch off the production of antioxidant enzymes when you don't need them. Whereas vitamin A and E actually block that pathway. So overall, you get if you if you have got antioxidant enzymes up, the, those vitamins will stop their degradation and also add further direct antioxidant levels. So it leads to a state of antioxidative stress which is a sort of new phenomenon, really. Okay. Uh, and this is really, you know, all the sort of anti-lifestyle journalists love this. They say, oh, you know, it's going to lead to an increased risk of cancer and poor sports performance. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's true. But it's, it's, it, it's not the same as polyphenol-rich foods. Right. They, 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 they regulate inflammation. They regulate immunity. So when you say a you know, turmeric is, is anti-inflammatory, it's not actually a correct statement. Um, turmeric, for example, regulates the inflammatory response. So in other words, it improves inflammation when you need it and it switches off inflammation when you don't need it. It also improves um, immunity by increasing killer T cells and neutrophils into the bloodstream when you need it, but not when you don't need it. And that's why you don't get autoimmune diseases, which is an over uh, upregulation of your immune system when you eat these foods. In fact, the opposite. We know that you eat polyphenol-rich foods, you're going to reduce the risk of autoimmune diseases, either by the direct mechanism or by improving gut health. So it's, you know, it makes my blood boil when I see, you know, repeat, and it's the same thing. Every six months, when the journalist's got nothing else to do, they come out with the same old story. Supplements and fruit <laughs> and veg cause cancer and degenerative disease. And it's all based on cell line and animal data of vitamin A and E. Saying that, there are some clinical data to support that. The SELECT study for prostate cancer was giving people um, vitamin E and selenium supplementation, and they found an increased risk of prostate cancer. The ABTC studies from Scandinavia, which gave vitamin A and E after head and neck and lung cancers actually found there was an increased relapse rate. So right. uh, other studies like EPIC, which found that people who are deficient in those, which is rare in the West, did actually benefit from supplementation, as you can imagine. But people with normal levels who take those supplements actually do themselves more harm than good. So as a general rule, I would say to people, do not take extra A and E supplementation, but Foods containing these, like pistachio, nuts, carrots, papaya, mango, it is perfectly safe to, to eat as, as, as much as you want because you're very rarely going to sort of poison yourself with those vitamins. So I hope that's clear now. Yeah, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. You, you know, it's incredible that um, 
the capacity of foods to have a, a protective effect against overdose, for example. I mean, apart from things like maybe too much liver with vitamin A, mm. but Brazil nuts, for example, have huge amounts of selenium, but there's never been a reported, well, to my knowledge, never been a reported case of selenium overdose through Brazil nut consumption, but there is through supplementation, Yes, um, which I find astonishing. Um, Another thing which you mentioned was vitamin E, which I wanted to revert back to because there's eight different forms of vitamin E. And I was wondering what they use in these studies. Is it alpha tocopherol? Um, rather than using the, the four different tocopherols and the tocotrienols as well? Well, the, the, all the vitamin E's have direct antioxidant effects. So um, you're right, I get this. I, I get asked this in, in when I give presentations. And I must be fed oh, up well, a bit then. Maybe, uh, yeah, my, my apologies. <laughs> no, no, no I'm not, they say, oh, maybe in the you know, ATBC you gave the wrong type of vitamin E. I don't think that actually matters that much. Right. Um, the, they, they all have a direct effect, so I, I would not advise it. If you want to take vitamin E and vitamin A, then I, you, you, would, you should measure your baseline levels. And trials which have done that have usually shown a benefit if you give it to deficient people. It's the same with vitamin D, actually. We, we're fortunate with vitamin D that it doesn't increase your... You know, you can take quite a lot of it, and it's, there doesn't seem to be a harm unless you take massive doses... Uh, uh, but every now and again they say oh vitamin d supplementation doesn't work and there was a study from canada recently which suggested that but they didn't measure baseline levels so of course it's only going to work in people who are deficient isn't it and they they don't do those studies um so yeah just be careful with supplementation which contain vitamins apart from d which i would encourage you in the winter but supplements which contain whole polyphenol-rich foods, that's different because you're basically taking a food and just concentrating it. And for many people, that's a convenient way to boost their diet. I'm not saying you take it instead of a healthy diet, but for example, in one of the studies we did, the POMI tea study, which I've mentioned before, people yes. took it with your breakfast and lunch in an English-type environment where it's not normal to have polyphenols for your breakfast you know we have white bread you know sugar butter um, you know white sugary cereals but actually taking a pill you know packed full of uh, turmeric green tea pomegranate and broccoli actually in that group was highly beneficial and that was demonstrated in the study so yeah there are situations where supplements are good but of course they wouldn't replace trying to eat as healthy as you can all the time yeah of course, of course. Um, and I'll link to that study that you mentioned about pommy tea in the show notes for listeners. Yeah. With regards to um, biological pathways, so we covered inflammatory biomarkers and you've touched upon reactive oxygen species as well. Um, I'd like to touch upon IGF-1 and I find this topic extremely interesting because exercise seems to reduce the levels of IGF-1 in circulation. However, um, Many people who exercise, especially go to the gym and maybe are looking to put on muscle mass, will increase their amount of protein and maybe a consumption of dairy, which will naturally increase IGF-1. For example, you have bovine IGF-1 in dairy because you're trying to make a cow grow. Um, is there a risk between consuming too much of the IGF-1 from foods and does it mitigate the benefits of exercise in this way? Um, well, you're right to point out that. I mean, the, going back in time, when people were looking at, say, for example, if you had cancer and you exercise, would you reduce your relapse rate? There was a very good study from Australia which uh, looked at um, if people exercised more than three hours a week after bowel cancer, 
uh, they followed them for five years, and there was actually a 15% reduction in the rate of bowel cancer relapse. These people were all actually in another study where they had blood samples, and they actually measured IGF-1. And they found that um, people who exercise had lower IGF-1 as well, and that was an independent re- uh, factor for a reduced risk of bowel cancer relapse. Right. So it's very important. Yeah. And various other things affect IGF-1, being overweight, polyphenol, rich foods, reduced mm-hmm. IGF-1. So, you, so you, you're right to be concerned that if you have a, then a diet packed full of you know, too much meat and too much dairy, um, then, yeah, you could be counterbalancing that particular element. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not aware of any studies to show that uh, people who have a lot of these foods actually then have a higher risk of cancer, um, but, it's, but it is a concern. Okay, that's really good, really mm. good to point out. Are there any other biochemical pathways which are influenced through exercise that infer benefit? So yes, there are many biochemical pathways which are changed after exercise. And I wrote a paper with Stacey Kenfield from Southern California last year in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. I would point readers towards that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've been through the direct and indirect mechanisms. The indirect mechanisms would be weight reduction, improvement in vitamin D if you're exercising outside, improvement in mood, all of which right, yes. in their own rights have a reduction in cancer risk and relapse. In the direct mechanisms, you know, we've already talked about uh, inflammation, oxidative stress. Uh, there is improvements in estrogen levels. So if you are um, overweight, you have your estrogen levels tend to be too high. And that's why there's a correlation between estrogen sensitive tumours such as breast, uterus, ovary. Yeah. Interestingly, estrogen levels drop before you start losing weight. So it's actually exercise itself is independent of weight of the other biochemical pathways we've already talked about insulin like growth factor yeah. improves insulin sensitivity so it reduces levels of insulin which is also supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, a risk factor for cancer and i'll just rattle off there's uh, um, <laughs> neuroendocrine hormones such as leptin um, vasoactive intense intestinal protein ericin i mean the list goes on and on right um and as I say, if anyone's interested, they can look up the data for these. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't schedule a three-hour podcast <laughs> unless we'd be going in more in-depth about these these different pathways. The, sorry, there is one I forgot to mention, which is really important, is that exercise actually is now shown to improve gut health. And gut health leads to reduce inflammation in your gut, improve immunity, and reduce systemic inflammation. So, uh, sorry, that, that's part of the list as well. Brilliant. And I just want to revert back to one of those because we didn't schedule a three hour podcast, but the the estrogen in particular, because this this is something which I'm sure people will be thinking about and estrogen dependent cancers, mainly people who've experienced them or know know someone who who has. Is there like high intensity interval training or weight training, which has a beneficial effect on estrogen over another type of exercise? Uh, Not not really. I mean, the the data for reduction in estrogen levels is usually a combination of of, uh, a sensible regime. I mean, a a sensible regime after cancer would include, uh, as I said before, uh, anaerobic uh, aerobic exercise such as walking where you get breathless, but also a degree of resistance training Mm -hmm. mainly to improve muscle bulk and uh, improve um, weight bearing sort of pressure on the joints and pressure on the bones to encourage increased bone density 
Okay, brilliant. I will link to the paper that you uh, that you spoke about in the show notes for everyone. So if you want more detail, um, I highly recommend that you go there. So what about exercise intra and post cancer diagnosis? I mean, you spoke about how beneficial Pilates is before um, and how people should be using this in every oncology unit. Um, why do you think that's so beneficial? And Chris, maybe we will get you involved in a second to, uh, to explain this further. Um, well, I, you know, if it was up to me, I would have a exercise professional and a Pilates instructor in every oncology unit. Um, we, we, the Royal College of Anesthetists are actually starting a prehabilitation initiative um, where we're looking. I was part of that, and we're looking to see whether we, if someone needs an operation or needs to come to start chemotherapy or more importantly start one of these biological treatments which cause joint pains and heart problems, whether we should get them into an exercise program for a month first to get them fitter for their treatment. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence coming through now that uh, you'd be better off you know, delaying your, say, bowel operation by a couple of weeks and going to the gym instead. So you're less likely to get a blood clot, you're less likely to get infection, your immunity is better, your gut health is better, so you'll recover wow. much better. And it could be that you change, well, this is a more research question, you change your uh, body biochemistry. Mm-hmm. So when you're manipulating the tumour, you're already sort of in an anti-cancer type mode. Um, so is it, that's exciting stuff. But during chemotherapy, there's lots of data now to show if you exercise, you probably improve outcomes. You're able to tolerate uh, the chemotherapy better so we don't do dose reductions right in fact there was a trial called the paces study which looked which randomized people into quite an intense regime against a moderate or no um, exercise and mm-hmm. the intense regime uh, was highly beneficial in reducing the risk of infections and in keeping immunity up reducing the risk of peripheral neuropathy um same applies after radiotherapy and the biological treatments. But more importantly, you've got a group of people who've gone through the cancer treatments and are pretty battered. Right. Um, you know, they're suffering from weight gain. They, their mood is worse. Um, they, um, they, they often have less muscle and more fat. So then any sort of old injuries such as bad backs or bad knees... Uh, come to light many of the drugs such as the aromatase inhibitors for breast cancer Mm -hmm. uh, the taxotere herceptin and all the other biologicals are causing joint uh, discomfort which uh, then is a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you then have less muscle power more joint problems a lower mood you're not able to do exercise yeah of course and the beauty well I, i i won't um you know, I let Christina talk about the benefits of Pilates, but you know, I often refer people to Pilates because it, you know, it accompanies everything. You've got a one-to-one tuition by an expert who are able to be sensitive to the patient's needs. Um, and uh, anyway, I won't, I won't go there because we've got an expert with us today. So, Christina, super excited to speak to you. Um, after just hearing all the biochemistry with Rob. Pilates is something which I'm hugely interested in. In fact, my partner, she does it all the time and I am absolutely rubbish at it, which just shows that I really need to do it more. Um, But in relation to how Pilates is so beneficial with cancer, etc., why I find it to be so fascinating is it increases your awareness of body movement, it seems. And some cancer treatments 
seem to reduce the um, the kind of your sense of where your limbs are, for example, it's called proprioception. You get an overall awareness of your body. Um, how did you get into Pilates to begin with and what benefits have you seen? Okay, so first of all, thanks for having me on today. I'm uh, so really welcome. excited to be here. Uh, my journey with Pilates started, I'd say, over 15 years ago when I was still in my old job. Um, sedentary, interestingly enough, working in comms. Uh, and that was one of the turning points for me. You know, I was sick and tired of sitting behind a desk. I had my children, which made my body even more sensitive. And um, I've always been a mover. I've always thrived on movement. And Pilates was the one thing which I just found always accessible. Um, I enjoy doing as well as many other different sports. But mm -hmm. the one thing it's made me realize that it's not about how hard I work out or how much I exercise. It's more about the quality of movement and it's more about working out optimum. Um, so I've been doing Pilates for 15 years. I've changed careers, uh, uh, decided to change career, my career about five years ago. I uh, qualified two years ago and I'm teaching mat Pilates and currently going through my comprehensive training, which is going to allow me to teach on reformer and all the other sort of larger apparatus, including trapeze table, chair, etc., so in terms of uh, just going back to your comment on, on cancer and other lifestyle related uh, issues, I found Pilates is, is, is hugely uh, helpful because it taps into the individual and it, it's, not, it's not looking at the, the global thing of a, a global scheme of things in terms of comparing ourselves to someone else. It's all about that one person in that moment of time. So if someone has just gone through treatment or has had an injury, mm -hmm. we would specifically look at what their needs are at moment at that moment of time. And it's not a quick quick. So we'd look at a very sensible and a very gradual approach as to, okay, what is it that we need to do? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Because I imagine there's a lot of people at home some people might be very active right now. And I know Pilates plays so much into kind of sports performance and even posture. Like I've even noticed myself several times whilst we're having this conversation of my shoulders slouching and slouching forward. Um, and I imagine Pilates helps hugely with that as well. But also um, something which um, I think Pilates is beautiful at is that you can start it kind of at any age and at any level. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's one of one of the beauties of this uh, this form of exercise. I mean, um, lifestyle related issues, uh, and unfortunately, our modern lifestyles and sedentary works mm. way of living result in so many different issues with our bodies, and not just elderly people. I'm seeing more and more youngsters, unfortunately, children even, who you know we are sitting behind desks uh, all day long. Then we get home then we are on our phone so things like developing kythotic postures low doses joint issues purely because we are not moving enough and losing mobility um, uh, through you know our walks of life um, and unfortunately day-to-day -day life does can take a very heavy toll on our bodies um, and it is uh, realizing uh, and becoming aware of this issue which is matters more than more than anything uh, so yes, your point is very valid. Um, so uh, whether you are old or young, you can start Pilates at any stage. 
Um, and I always say to people, don't compare yourself to anyone. You know, it's yeah. your individual journey. You're going to have your own objectives and own goals. Uh, and we try and work with people very closely in terms of coming up with a realistic plan, but which they can build into their sort of day-to-day lifestyle. So uh, I can work with them an hour a week. Maybe mm-hmm. they can come to a class as well. But then what I also do is uh, I'd like to um, involve them in day-to-day activities, practical uh, tips uh, that they can then take away with them. And, you know, next time they sit down, they're going to think about, okay, this is how I need to sit. I need to find my sit bones. I need to feel tall and open. Uh, so, yes, there's, there's so much to it. Uh, and it is an educative process. Um, and it is more about getting into your body, becoming aware of what's going in in, in your body uh, and having the mental concentration of, OK, what is it that I need to to make better and working on it? Yes. Having the commitment as well, because, you know, it's, it's a whole body approach, but there needs to be a commitment from the individual, too. Yeah. Absolutely. And I've noticed in myself that depending on what I'm doing or what kind of job I have, those kind of um, weaknesses, if you will, change over time. So like what needs work in my body changes throughout the year, throughout several years. Um, And Pilates can always help to identify, I guess, well, it certainly has with me, where areas that I need to work on, right? Absolutely. And um, this is why every single class or session I I start, I always ask people, how is your body today? Because our bodies are changing dynamically, not just year on year, but every day we feel very different. Uh, It's also very much dependent on our emotional state, Mm -hmm. on our stress levels. Uh, I find that people are living in their sympathetic nervous system more and more. You know, we are constantly fight or flight. We are not giving our nervous system the the, the rest that it needs. So um, breathing, I found, is absolutely key. We don't breathe properly. Very, a lot of people breathe inefficiently. Uh, And it's the first thing that I I usually start with, creating space from inside out, using the lungs full capacity, breathing fully and slowly, as opposed to just um, using um, a breath on the top of our our, our lungs, really. So that's number one. And and it's it's a huge thing for people because it's that sort of point where they notice, you're right, you know, they never really thought of it. So taking them over to the parasympathetic nervous system where actually breathing slows down uh, and this is where the quality of movements can really improve because it's the slowness, the concentration by the mind Mm -hmm. on the muscles, the bones that they need to use in localizing these movements as opposed to just using the body globally which you know essentially we want to do but we like to break it down in pilates and really understand okay how is the hip working is my flexion and extension good can i lift my arms and you know that goes back to day-to-day functional movements of simply lifting something off from the top of the shelf which a lot of people you know really struggle with so but you make such a, a valid point and something which i never really thought about because it is a form of stress reduction, right? And mindfulness, because you're using your breath to control certain exercises and movements. And 
kind of reducing those stress levels are going to play into everything. And I imagine going through something like a cancer diagnosis is a very stressful time anyway. So if you can do multiple things at once, reduce your stress levels, increase your mobility and strength, it's hugely beneficial. One thing which you touched upon as well, which I just want to revert back to, is don't compare yourself. And this is something which I think is so important, especially because the age of Instagram and people always looking at the fittest people on there. And you've got influences, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing, but if you focus on them too much, you will compare yourself, right? Whether it be conscious or subconsciously. And this can have negative connotations because people look at them and be like, I can never do that. And that's a negative mindset, right? But everyone starts somewhere, even the the best in the world of whatever sport you want to be in. They started off not being able to do something. Um, And I think you just need to change that paradigm and that mindset. And from what you just said, you know, Pilates can be useful at any age, at any fitness level. The best thing that you can do is just get started and see where you can go. Yes, yes. I mean, social media is a funny one. Um, It does affect us psychologically. And yes, there is the comparison issue. Um, And yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, First of all, I think whenever we see something like that, yes, it might look beautiful and these people... Uh, you know, can do very difficult things, but we don't see the journey behind that. You know, they would have probably been doing that for years. It doesn't come, you know, one day uh, suddenly. So, you know, there's hard work behind that. Secondly, I think people need to ask themselves the question, do I really need to be able to do that? Do I really want that? Is that where I am with my body? So uh, I always encourage people to try and think of their objectives and how is it that their body feels? what's the energy in their body does my body feel dynamic am I pain-free can I uh, conduct my day-to-day activities uh, you know efficiently whether that's simply picking up your children or tying up your shoelaces or lifting Mm -hmm. up a box and that's going to be different for every single person so you know someone who has uh, gone through treatment cancer treatment or any other uh, illness obviously their objectives are going to be very very different Um, and uh, this is where I guess the qualification of people really matters Uh, I've been very lucky to be trained by one of the sort of leading organizations out there, uh, a company called Polestar Pilates, whose uh, approach is very scientific based. Uh, They constantly review their training approaches, working with physicians uh, and updating their strategy to work uh, with people in terms of movement uh, um, and biodynamics, etc., Um, So, yes, I'm very lucky in that sense, but I need to, I mean, my number one priority is to be working safely with people. So safety is number one. So whenever I, I see someone, my first question is, you know, where are they with their general health? Are there any uh, pathologies, injuries that I need to be aware? Are there any contraindications or precautions that I need to be aware of? So, you know, if I have a a cancer patient um, who uh, also has osteoporosis, I need to make sure that I'm not going to do exercises with them which are contraindicated for osteoporotic people, such as flexion-related exercises, whilst trying to come up with an exercise program that they will directly benefit from. Um, Yes, and I've I've got some wonderful uh, cancer patients who... Uh, have gone through treatments uh, such as a single mastectomy with a lot of scar tissues on that side of the body 
the surgery also really impacts on breathing, the whole system really. Um, and the results have been remarkable uh, to the extent that the person goes back, to, uh, you know, for their regular checks and gets very positive feedbacks from the breast nurses about their mobility, which has increased, uh, you know, dramatically on that side. It's mm -hmm. almost the same as on the other side now. Uh, but breathing, breathing is a, is a huge one, huge one, because it really it really affects them in terms of their stress levels. Um, and uh, just psychologically, I think, I think overall. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's great when you talk about mobility and things of that nature, because these are elements which I guess people don't really think about, which are hugely important when it comes to surgery. But even you mentioned functional movements, and it just got me thinking when you're thinking like tying your shoes or, or putting something on a shelf, something that we take for granted every single day. But when you have a cancer diagnosis or you go through treatment, um, maintaining or getting or being proficient with those functional movements are going to make you more mobile later on, even after the cancer treatment has happened, for example. Um, and I'm just thinking this could be beneficial for people if they know they're going to have a treatment becoming more functional in their bodies. So afterwards, they're starting from a better place. Yes, definitely. Uh, and that really would apply to any prehabilitation, really. Uh, I mean, naturally, the stronger the body is, the, bo the better state your body is in, uh, the faster your recovery is going to be. Um, and and I, I've, I have noticed that. Uh, with with many of my clients, I mean, unfortunately, uh, uh, we tend to see a lot of people post re uh, their their surgeries because they've been through their physios. Mm -hmm. You know, they've done all the work that a physio can do, and they kind of then have an open book. The physio says, "Okay, off you go now." I would recommend you work with uh, so and so. You know, have do Pilates, do this, but people don't know where to start. They don't yeah. know what they can and can't do. And, and this is where, where we fit in really well, uh, just being that step closer to the physicians that they might have worked with, uh, just having a very good understanding of, you know, what they have been through and what the next step would be in terms of rehabilitation for them. Um, also, when people go through the trauma of, uh, you know, injury or, or surgery or any type of illness, um, you know they're going to lose their their uh, uh, their balance is going to be impaired, their stability. Uh, so that's going to be my sort of first ground that I'm going to be working on, mm -hmm. as to again going back to the safety point of um, how how can we uh, increase the stability of this person to prevent you know further injury, uh, falling. Um, and if they fall, how could they fall successfully? How could we prevent of you know them breaking their leg, etc.? So, uh, making sure that the body does become as supple and as dynamic as it possibly can to prevent further things things happening. That's, yeah. that's such an interesting point, like falling but falling successfully, right? So if you do fall, the ability to catch yourself and things of that nature, because I imagine as we age, we might have brittle bones or we might have a propensity to fall but also not fall well as in we might not put our hands down in time or things like that so again you were talking about functional movements and I think that is something which I didn't think about either but I think is hugely important is just being aware of your body more and how that plays into everything not just of how you move but how you can also prevent injury as well 
Yeah, yeah, and this is where sort of slowing down comes into uh, comes into a very strong point here, because when we uh, are you know constantly fighting and flying and and we live a very fast uh, pace of, of of living, you don't notice, you know, you, you don't have the time to notice. So I find with Pilates, just slowing down, just lying down on the floor and lifting your limbs. Uh, is going to make you aware, okay, I actually, it hurts my hip to rotate internally or externally, or I just don't have the range of movement on this, on this side as I have on the other side. And it's these small, subtle things that are going to ultimately make, make a difference in, in, in your global way of moving, in all your functional movements. Um, I also find that there is so much, and this goes back to stress and um, uh, our way of living and lifestyle, so much stiffness and, and, and constant contraction in our bodies and muscles. So again, through breathing and slowing down, tapping into the parasympathetic nervous system, uh, finding the release and, and softness in the body, I found again just makes a huge difference to people. You know, when you are when your body is in constant contraction, it's it's difficult to find release and and healing to the mm. extent. So, um, yeah, it's just finding that middle ground and tapping into the person themselves because, you know, one approach or one way of communication might work with one person very well but not with the other. So it's it's a mind game and it does come with experience and developing the right communication skills, using the right um, uh, sort of visual cues, if you like. Uh, it, it is a, a real minefield. Yeah. yeah, and I think you've just emphasised Rob's point, if you didn't even mean to, is that you need to work with a, with a professional who knows what they're doing and knows can, can really suss out your body and your movements. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for home workouts, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the same as having someone there who can correct your posture if you're doing it wrong or correct your form, which I think will play into the actual functional movement and the overall benefit. Yes, yes, absolutely. And this is a, re a really good example at the moment. Obviously, during the uh, pandemic, I started teaching my classes online on Zoom. And of course, it's not quite the same as being there in person. Uh, tactile cueing forms a very huge part of our training um, in, in terms of our sort of general communication and using our hands to guide people in the right movement or perhaps slightly increasing the, uh, the range of movement that they should be achieving, whether that's in rotation or lateral flexion or anything. It's, it's, it's very important and people can hugely benefit from it. I mean, even during the classes, I was trying to encourage people to use their own hands um, to feel their bodies, you know, whether when we are, it's when we are breathing to place their palms on the, on the rib cage and really feel how, you know, the ribs increase and expand as you breathe in. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's very important and uh, I can't wait to get back to the studio and, and to be able to do it properly again. So, yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed you'll get back soon. Yes. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Chris. Um, and to the both of you, Rob, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm going to ask you the last three questions, which I ask everyone who comes on the show. And um, with the first one being, what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? Uh, I guess from a personal point of view, uh, for me, it would be slowing down and uh, 
giving myself the permission to slow down, um, leaving a, a stressful life behind. Uh, and I found that Pilates has really enabled me to do that because it really gets, allows you to get into your body uh, and become aware of what's going on with you at that moment of time and what is it that you need to do. Brilliant. And you, Rob? Um, this is a sort of pragmatic thing, but actually starting the day without any sugar at all, any processed sugar at all, uh, has meant that you know, halfway through the morning you don't get hungry. And two or three times a week is to go for a, a run on, a, on an empty stomach um, and then have your lunch afterwards. In a way, it's, it's a sort of the most efficient way of intermittent fasting. So you've gone from, say, 7.30 to 1.30 without food. And you don't need it. If you haven't had any sugar, you feel great all morning. So I would say, you know, that single tip was the best for me. And how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of in interventions and modalities that you've both touched upon today? I guess from my point of view, uh, it would have to come back with to physios being able to refer people uh, for exercise types such as Pilates. I think at the moment it's it's very underestimated uh, and I think gen the general public would really uh, benefit from being able to do uh, carry out Pilates um, under their health private health insurances. And how about you, Rob? Well, I'd like to revolutionise the whole of the NHS, to be honest. And I think if you go, uh, if you have your blood pressure screened or cholesterol screened, uh, early dementia, things like that, early arthritis, I think you should be referred to a nutritionist, a good nutritionist, maybe yourself, Ben, um, or uh, an exercise professional. And the first thing you should do is adopt a lifestyle change. If that fails, then you go on to medication. And I would say in the majority of cases, you wouldn't need to. But that would require intensive logistical change, lots of financial investment, which will come back to the NHS because, you know, we spend billions of pounds a year on drugs which could have been avoided if you have adopted a healthy lifestyle. So, uh, you know, it may be a short-term pain for long-term gain, but, I, you know, I'd love to make If you want to vote me in as the next health minister, that's what I'd be concentrating <laughs> on, although he's a bit busy with COVID at the moment. So. Yeah, just a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. Okay, fantastic. And before I ask the final question, can you please tell the listeners where they can find you both and what exciting projects that you have coming up? Okay, so I'm teaching uh, small group classes and private uh, uh, sessions from my lovely garden studio, um, which is nice and airy. We are going back to face-to-face -face training now, which I'm super excited about. Uh, people can get in touch with me via my website, uh, which is christinakishpilates.com. Uh, I'm also on, on Instagram and Facebook under the same name, Christina Kish Pilates. So, yes, uh, do do get in touch, and hopefully we can get back to uh, training and 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 becoming more mobile again, which uh, which would be great. Uh, well, I'm going to have to plug my book, Ben, aren't I? Which is coming out <laughs> next week. It's called How to Live. It took three years in writing, and it really basically summarizes all the evidence from around the world and the evidence from our from our own studies and you know and like other authors we we have conducted these studies in fact a lot of the, our studies are quoted by other authors so um yeah so that's number one if you want everything our scientific papers which are you're going to link to for someone who wants a bit more depth absolutely um 
in terms of ongoing projects, uh, we're doing we're currently doing a COVID nutritional intervention studies. It's the largest in Europe, and we're looking to see if patients who've had COVID, if can, they can improve their gut health with a, um, a probiotic supplement called Your Gut Plus, plus a, a supplement which is packed full of polyphenols uh, and other lifestyle measures could improve their gut health, reduce their excess chronic inflammation, and improve their recovery from COVID, which is pretty nasty, you know, in terms of long-term uh, fatigue. We're also doing another study with the University of Bedfordshire, which is quite exciting as well. It's been put on hold because of COVID, but it's going to be restarting in the autumn. And that's the first study, which is looking at uh, two different cohorts within the same design. So we're looking at athletes, and we're looking at people who've been through the trauma of cancer. Now, you might think, well, that's two very different groups. Well, it's not really, because they're both groups who want to try and get the best performance out of themselves, whatever their baseline is. Mm-hmm. Cancer patients, of course, have suffered a lot, and got arthritis, etc. And many of the problems we discussed earlier in this program is that uh, when you uh, exercise a lot or you exercise unaccustomedly, you generate free radicals and increase your oxidative stress. So the intervention is actually to give uh, a probiotic supplement, which we're using Yogurt Plus again, and we're using a supplement called Pommy Sport, which is a pack full of polyphenols. And the idea is, is if you start exercising, if you load your body with ways to improve gut health, increase your serum polyphenol levels, which help reduce inflammation and reduce excess oxidative stress, that that means you are going to have uh, less damage when you exercise. So less damage to joints, you're more likely to recover. It's linked to a better mood, so you're more likely to be motivated to exercise. Now, of course, that's my view, but we don't actually know that's true if that intervention works. So it's going to be a very large 300-patient, double-blind, randomized design. And hopefully you'll invite me back on the program in, uh, in 18 months' time, and I'll be able to tell you if that intervention actually worked or not. Absolutely, Rob, and I look forward to it. Last but not least, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? Okay, so uh, from me, uh, the first one would have to be just simply keep moving and, and don't stop moving, no matter what it is and no matter how small, anything is better than nothing. So just keep moving uh, and do what feels good. You know, if walking is your thing, walk. Uh, if playing tennis is, is your thing, do that. Just, you know, don't stop and don't just sit behind a desk all day long. The second one would be, and this is kind of going the other side of of moving, is just lying flat on the floor. Uh, you know, even if it's just five minutes every night going to uh, before going to bed at night time, lie down flat on the floor. It's underestimated how beneficial this is for the body and breathe. Uh, you know, and, and try to become mindful of, you know, how the body is feeling, everything you have accomplished that day, uh, and try and empty your brain, uh, your lungs, deep, uh, with deep breathing, um, sort of oxy- oxygenizing your body uh, as much as you can, particularly before going to sleep. And then the third one would have to be staying committed, but be re- being realistic. So, Again, any new movement, any new exercise types that you're going to, or hobbies that you're going to introduce into your lifestyle, 
be realistic about it. it. It will have to be on the long term. So uh, something that you're going to introduce as a quick fix and you're going to hate from the beginning is never going to work. So, you know, stay committed, but be realistic about what you can do as part of your lifestyle day to day. Yeah. I'm going to be slightly controversial here, but I did actually say this in front of a group of um, uh, oncologists and surgeons who specialise in prostate cancer, and I wanted to make an impact. So I said, "Sex, wine, and rock and roll." <laughs> now, there is there is a, there is theory behind this. We know that people who are more sexually active have a lower risk of prostate cancer. Yeah. We link it in with your move more. Yeah, well, that's, that's part of it. Maybe a psychological bit. Uh, we know that uh, not all alcohol and excess, of course, is bad. But we know a glass of red wine is, uh, you know, is good for gut health. It's uh, got resveratrol, which is a less healthy polyphenol. Um, and that is linked to um, reduced prostate cancer and other cancers. And rock and roll is more a sort of a play on words of dancing and being physically active. Uh, and I also in, in, in that conference, I'll mention, you know, sunbathing in moderation. You know, in the winter months, it's really important to get plenty of sun. It's good for your circadian rhythm. It's good for your vitamin D levels as well. So if you're going to do your sex rock and rock and roll, you can do it on a beach as well. <laughs> but don't burn. Don't burn. Very true, very true. No increased skin cancers, please. Well, Chris, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've really, really enjoyed myself um, and I hope that we can do this again soon. We'd love to. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for the editing and Alan Harper for his support.